We're continuing in Ephesians, and this week our passage is Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit, of, by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that though the gospel, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through him in faith, in, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory, which are for glory. It is, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Emily. Good morning, friends. How's everybody doing? Peace be with you. Let's try it again. Peace be with you. No. I would get a louder response probably if I said the force be with you. You'd also say, and also with you. Even though that's not even in Star Wars. They stole that from Christians. Um, it's just funny how that works sometimes. Um, that's just a little, little aside, a little about me. I know that's all, that is basically the extent of my Star Wars knowledge. This sermon is going to have nothing to do with Star Wars, and we'll cut this out of the sermon audio that goes on the podcast. Uh, the sermon this morning from Ephesians 3 is actually about how understanding the gospel can bring confidence and hope to you in your trials, in your suffering. That's the big idea here, that how understanding the gospel can bring confidence and hope to you, uh, and that's a good thing. We're smack in the middle of our series uh, in this book of Ephesians that we're calling God's masterpiece, the church. And I don't know about you when you think of masterpiece, when I think of masterpiece, it's something beautiful. You usually think of the finished product when you think of a masterpiece. You don't think of all the things that had to go beforehand before you got to that masterpiece. Um, you don't think of all the struggles and the trials. You don't chisel something beautiful out of granite without taking a hammer to it. There's some suffering that has to happen on behalf of the granite, behalf of the master, uh, to make it happen, to get that beautiful thing. And we're seeing in Ephesians that the church is God's masterpiece. And Paul's been saying over and over again that this masterpiece is a work of grace. And it's God's trophy. The church is God's trophy that he holds out to all of creation to look to it and say, that, is, that, that must be an amazing God to be able to bring that into being. And so the church is God's masterpiece. We're smack in the middle of Ephesians. Uh, but today is a little bit of a detour. Um, the passage uh, that we just read is a little bit of a detour. The apostle Paul is writing to a church and he's describing how God's amazing power is at work in them. 
God is raising people from the dead. He's bringing divided peoples together. And then he starts to pray for them in chapter three. And as he begins, he gets sidetracked. Anybody ever get sidetracked when you pray? Come on now. Every time you pray, you get sidetracked. I can't pray anymore without getting sidetracked because my phone's conditioned me to think in sound bites and five-second clips. Paul's the same way. You're in good company. Paul gets sidetracked too. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And in your translation, you may have a dot, 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 or you may have a dash. And that's because Paul breaks off at that point. Something catches his attention and he sidetracks. And we get a hint as to what sidetracked him if you skip all the way down to verse 13. It says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. It's important, I think, for us to remember that Paul, Paul's not a professor who's delivering a lecture. He's a pastor who's pastoring hurting people. And the problem that prompted him to write this passage and to get sidetracked is that he's actually in jail as he's writing this. And he's suffering. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus, he says. And he's suffering. And he realizes that his brothers and sisters in the church in Ephesus are prone to be discouraged. He tells them, do not be discouraged. The word there is actually, do not be disheartened. Do not have your heart taken out of you for me. Because they had good reason to be discouraged, actually. And Paul had actually been the church planter who helped plant the church in Ephesus. And the book of Acts chapter 20 records this amazing moment. Paul spent years with these people. He's, he's got elders who are like brothers with him. They've been in the trenches of ministry. And Paul decides to leave the church in Ephesus because God has called him to take the gospel elsewhere onto Rome. And Acts chapter 20 verse 36 puts it this way. This is the scene in Ephesus. Paul knelt down with all of them, the Ephesian elders, and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. And after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea. That's a pretty beautiful picture of deep friendship right there. Being torn away from them being compelled to share the gospel. He, he left his brothers and sisters and everyone's crying because that depth of a relationship was so real. And then Acts tells us that Paul goes on from Ephesus only to be shipwrecked, only to be captured and beaten uh, and tortured by an angry mob and bound in chains. He had people plotting to kill him. Acts says that some people hated Paul so much for the message he was preaching, the gospel of grace, that they swore an oath not to eat or drink until they'd killed him. And now here he is in prison on his way, most likely to be executed. And this is true, I think, for any of us, but when you have a friend, a dear friend who is suffering you're prone to get discouraged. You're prone to be disheartened because it raises big questions, big doubts about why God would do this. Why does God do these sorts of things? What is God up to? And the foundation, the rug kind of feels like it gets pulled out from you. You know, when you're suffering, it's really hard. But when someone you love is suffering, 
It's a peculiar kind of hard. It's, it's a special kind of hard. So what do you do when you're in the middle of trials that discourage you? What do you do when you're in the middle of trials that you see someone you love going through? I think Paul gives us insight into three truths that give him hope and give him confidence in the middle of his trials. And we know that this hope and this confidence that we have and these trials that we're going through are bringing to light for us this weight of glory, this masterpiece that God is putting together in the church. And so as all good sermons, I've got three points. The church has a message of grace. That's one of the things Paul wants to get across. The church has a message of grace. Second point, the church is a message of grace. And lastly, we as the church have access to the God of grace. The church has a message of grace, the first point. Look at verses two through five with me. Let me read them again. Paul says, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I've already written briefly in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This section, these 13 verses are dense. It doesn't read easy, but what Paul is saying here, and he hints at it over and over and over again, is that there's a revelation that's been revealed. He's talking about the word of God revealed through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Lord, and the revelation given through the apostles and the prophets. It's this big idea that the Bible is not primarily a book about human speculation about God. It's not about that at all. It's not man's search for meaning. It's God's word, his revelation of himself to humanity. Totally changes the information flow. It's not from man to God. It's from God to man. And then he unpacks this idea of what he calls the mystery. It's a huge word in this passage. This mystery, he says three times. What is this mystery that Paul says he was sent to proclaim? It's his calling to proclaim a mystery. When you and I hear mystery, we're conditioned to think like Sherlock Holmes or something almost exactly the opposite of what Paul actually means. When we think of mystery, we think of something that's hidden, that's our job to discover. You know, when I'm at home, usually at night, usually in my bed, watching Netflix with my wife, we like to watch mysteries, more or less, like British crime shows, you know, feel good things that that's not feel good. Uh, they usually end terribly. Uh, but the great thing about them, when we, as soon as we turn it on, I'm clued in and I'm trying to figure out who's, who done it. And so I'm looking over to my wife, I'm saying, who do you think did it? And she's like, we're like opening credits. Uh, because we're conditioned to think of mystery. It's my job to figure out what's going on. And whether I get it right or not is, is hit or miss. But mystery, as Paul uses it here, is actually the opposite of that. It means not something that's hidden that you have to discover. It means something that you would never discover on your own. And so God has to reveal it to you. It's so counterintuitive. The Bible's concept of mystery means it's, it's so counterintuitive to the way your gut would tell you to go that you would never discover it on your own. It's not man's search for meaning. It's God's word come to you. It goes completely against the grain. And what is this mystery, Paul says? Whenever he uses it, though, he ties mystery to the gospel. 
always. The mystery is the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of grace. Three times, over and over again, it's grace. So why is that? Why would he say this mystery is the mystery of Christ, it's the mystery of grace? If we think about it for a second, the Bible never refers to the Ten Commandments as a mystery. Never. The Bible does not refer to the golden rule as a mystery. They're not mysteries. They're common sense. Every religion at any time in human history would essentially agree with the Ten Commandments, which essentially agree with the golden rule. It's not good to steal. That's not a mystery. It's not good to covet your neighbor's wife or to murder a stranger, murder anyone. It's not good to murder. And you should treat others as you want to be treated. Those things are true. They are from God, but they're not a mystery. They're not the gospel because they're what you would expect. The gospel is not what you would expect. So what is the gospel? Paul's laid it out for us in the first two chapters already, but the gospel is that the Son of God came to earth and he triumphed, not by squashing people in strength, but by lifting them up through weakness. The gospel is that God came in the form of an infant, a man born of a virgin, not some stately king, but in a stable. He gained everything, the Bible says, by giving it all away. He took up a cross. He bore the sins of people who hated him so that they could be forgiven, so that they could be loved and accepted by God. And by grace, through faith in Jesus, you can have that life. You have access to that God. That's the gospel. That's counterintuitive. That's why it's a mystery. And understanding this gospel, Paul says, I believe, gives us hope in the midst of our trials. He's writing to the Ephesians. They're discouraged. Why would he talk about this mystery? Because it gives you hope and confidence. Look at the difference it made in Paul's life. He says in verse 1, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus, not a prisoner of Rome, though he's in jail. He's not a prisoner of Rome in his mind. He's a prisoner of Jesus. He could see that God is in control and had put him right where he wanted him. Paul understood his place in the gospel, and it reoriented his thinking. He goes on to say that he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul was arrested because he was with the Gentiles, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. But he could see that his suffering had a purpose. It wasn't just random. He was giving his life to a purpose that transcended his imprisonment. So he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And then notice his humility in verse 8. He calls himself the least of all the saints. Your translation may say the least of all the Lord's people. Towards the end of his life, Paul essentially writes what is his last will and testament. And you have it in your Bible in the letter called 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes to Timothy, And he says, I was once this violent guy who was breathing out murderous threats on the Lord's people. I was persecuting the church of God, but here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Of whom I am the worst. So Paul says to the Ephesians, I'm the worst of all the saints. And as he grows in relationship with God and nears towards the end of his life, he's been on mission, he's been grinding it out. He gets to the point where he says, you know, I'm not just the worst of all the saints, of all the, the church. I'm the worst of any sinner who's ever lived. So as he grows in his understanding of the gospel, he gets more humble. He gets closer to Christ's likeness. And the point is this, grace descends to you when you are at your worst. When you're at your worst, grace doesn't hold it above your head. Grace comes down and scoops you up. God chased after Paul when he was on the road toward another uh, spree uh, where he was going to kill some folks because that's what he was doing, throwing them in jail, um, throwing rocks at people who love Jesus. And Jesus knocked him off his horse and said, you are mine. And from this point on, you are going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. I love you, Paul. I'm setting my mark on you. Though you hate me and persecute me, I'm going to change you. And furthermore, now that you're my chosen messenger, I'm going to send you to the people that you hated most, the people that you've been killing, these Gentile Christians. And so Paul is grasping this gospel over the course of the New Testament. And as he does so, we see it bleeds out in his letter to the Ephesians. And he's saying, this gospel gives hope and confidence in the midst of your trials because it will reorient everything you think about life. He knew now he is part of something bigger. He calls it the administration of God's grace. And God had given it to him. And he has hope now, even while he's in prison. Understanding the gospel gives us confidence and hope in our trials. Okay? If you ever go to England, I hope you get to go to the south coast of England. Something remarkable happened on the south coast of England. If you don't want to go to England, that's fine. If you don't want to spend your time on the south coast of England when you're there, that's fine too. You can watch a movie by Christopher Nolan, like I did, called Dunkirk. Anybody seen that movie? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, we got some Christopher Nolan folks out there. History buffs. Something remarkable happened in 1940. The Allied forces had been pushed all the way back um, in the corner of France. They had retreated all the way. The Germans are pushing on, uh, getting ready to enter into Great Britain. If the Germans capture Great Britain, the war is over. And so what's going to happen is you've got 350,000 men just essentially waiting to die. Um, because the, the British Navy doesn't have enough ships. They don't have the fuel. They don't have the manpower. And there's no way for them to get there without just being exploded by uh, German aircraft and all, all kinds of stuff. So they're stuck. But what happens, and this is what's remarkable, is on the horizon, the call was put out for any sailor, any citizen sailor, to make his way to France if he could. Doesn't matter how old you were, doesn't matter how young you were, doesn't matter how big your boat was. There were guys, there were guys just, you know, sailing ferries, sailboats, um, yachts, 
They were, they were bringing any bass boats. I don't know if they're bass boats, but it's probably something like a bass boat. Imagine across the English Channel, and there's just this whole fleet of ships, none of whom are wartime ships. None of them have guns on them. And this just army of ships come, and they rescue 338,000 Allied soldiers, and they take them back. It's just one of the most remarkable war stories that there is in human history. It's insane. When all hope seemed lost, these guys took it up on themselves to go save the day. And for those few days, those yachts and those bass boats, they weren't yachts and bass boats. They were on a mission. They were a part of the allied forces because they had a purpose. I think the same is true for you and I in our lives. It's, it's the gospel that gives us purpose. It's the gospel that invites us into a family that's something bigger than you and I ever imagined, much bigger than even our trials. So that's the first point. Paul says the church has a message of grace, but he also goes on and says the church is a mission, uh, message of grace. Paul saw his life as part of something bigger, but he looked around and he saw this mystery that he's just expounded, mystery of the gospel being revealed, what God was doing in the world. And he says, you know, it's actually bigger than what God is doing in the world. It's outside of this world. Look at verses 10 and 11. Paul says that his intent was now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the purpose of the church is far bigger than what you and I actually realize or could even imagine. What we're doing right now, the purpose of what we're doing right now is far bigger than you and I can even conceptualize with our tiny brains. Now, it is amazing. We can imagine spiritually dead people being brought back to life. That is uh, a result of the gospel. And we can imagine former enemies, different nations, different races, different classes who've lived divided being brought together in the church. That was happening now they're a family in Christ. And that's such a big deal, though. Something we can't imagine is happening. That God is using the church to reveal his wisdom, his manifold wisdom. Some translations say his multifaceted or brilliant wisdom. That word manifold is the same word that is used in the Old Testament for Joseph's coat of many colors. Joseph's manifold coat. It's this idea that God's wisdom has so many facets to it that you really can't comprehend it. Think about it. All the ways. How could, think of all the ways that God could show his wisdom. God could show his wisdom uh, to the heavenly realms in uh, human DNA or like the human genome. It's incredible. It just boggles your mind. God could show his wisdom in the precision of the universe, the engineering of the universe is insane. It's hard to fathom. It's hard to comprehend. I could think of lots of ways that God could choose to show uh, the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms, his wisdom. But it's through the church, Paul says, that God has chosen to reveal his wisdom. The church is a message of grace. It doesn't just have a message. It is a message. 
And Paul says, God is revealing it to who? Angels and demons. Angels and demons. Did you wake up this morning thinking about angels and demons? Probably not. I preach in a sermon about it, and I didn't even wake up thinking about angels and demons. But God, through Paul, is saying here that through the church, he is revealing his wisdom to the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's angels and demons, folks. We believe that. The very existence of the church is a sign to demons that their authority, that Satan's authority has been broken and that their defeat is sure. Checkmate, right? God shows that through his church, the purposes are being fulfilled and his, his purposes are moving forward. One scholar put it this way. This is a beautiful statement. And I think this ties very well into the sermon from last week. He says, people always tend to create societies and social structures in their own flat, boring image, monochrome, uniform, and one-dimensional. Worse, they tend to marginalize people who don't fit their narrow band of acceptability. The church is to be, by the very fact of its existence, a warning to them that their time is up, an announcement to the world that there is a different way to be human. The church is a message put on display before all of creation, the things you can see and the things you can't see that showcases the manifold wisdom of God. It's through the Christian community. It's healed relationships. It's through the church that the world can most readily see the incredible future that God is preparing for everyone and everything. Last week, we we saw the healing um, of racial divisions inside the church. And Paul's saying here that this is only a foretaste, though, of a time when all the hostile elements, the things we can see and can't see in creation, are going to be united in Christ. All the things that fall apart right now are going to be put back together. Anybody's body falling apart right now? When you get older, you will be feeling your body falling apart. That's literally what it's doing. It's just like falling off of itself. God is saying, I'm putting everything that's falling apart back together. You got family relationships that are broken and distance. There's a wedge there and you never see those coming back together. God says, I'm putting everything back together. The creation is groaning that there's going to come a day when it's not going to do that. All that, all that is fractured is going to be made whole. It's the church that gives people a taste of what that's going to be in Christ, Paul says. Famous pastor John Stott put it very well. He said it this way. It is through the old creation, the universe, things we see that God reveals his glory to humans, but it is through his new creation, the church, that he reveals his wisdom to angels and demons. And I thought about that a lot this week. Why? If Paul's in prison and he knows these people are discouraged and he's writing to them, why talk about angels and demons? Why talk about the church revealing God's wisdom to angels and demons? Why would he need to remind them? Why even mention it? And the conclusion I came to was because it gives meaning to your suffering. It gives meaning to your suffering to know that through the church, God is revealing his wisdom to the powers and authorities that you and I can't see. 
The book of Job in the Old Testament is a great example of this. It says that Job was the most godlike man in the world. There he was, loving God, loving the Lord. And he was afflicted by the unraveling of everything in his life. Terrorists came to his property. Job had tons of land. Terrorists came to his property. They set it on fire. They, they burned his cattle. They burned his sheep. They burned his barns. They burned his farm to the ground. His business, he had nothing. And then they weren't done. These terrorists killed 10 of his kids, all his kids, his sons and daughters murdered. He's left childless. He lost his health. It said he was afflicted with sores all over his body from his head to his toes. And then his marriage begins to suffer. His wife becomes very upset because Job stayed loyal to God through all of these trials. And she becomes upset and says, if this is what following God gets us, then why? Let's just forget it and move on. Let's curse God and die, she says. Let's call it quits. He lost the respect of his community and he lost the loyalty of his friends. It's a super sad story. He's suffering alone. And if you've ever suffered alone, you know that question. What's the point? If you are suffering alone or you feel like you are suffering alone, Paul is saying to you, don't be discouraged. There is a point. Paul gives us a clue. Even if no one sees your suffering, Paul says, there's a great cloud of witnesses in the heavenly places who are looking on and seeing you. Job only had a sliver of the picture. We see it, the reader, as, uh, from our perspective, we see behind the scenes that there's Satan, the devil. He comes to God, and he basically says, Job is loyal to you because you're his friend with benefits. He, he's your friend because you give him things. And you've been very kind to Job. But let me at him. Give me some rope. Let me at him. God says, okay. And there's this council. There's a heavenly council that's happening there. That's angels and demons and Satan and God are having this conversation behind the scenes. Job can't see him, but they're real. And so Satan goes after Job. He ruins his life. He takes his health. He roughs up his marriage, kills his kids. He comes back to God and says, now Job is going to curse you because I took everything away from him. When I'm finished with him, he's going to curse you. He's going to leave you. He's going to see that you're a fake and a fraud and not good for anything. But after all of this, Job's knee-jerk response was to bow on his face and he cries out, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Understanding the gospel gives you hope and confidence in your trials. Now, Job lived a faithful life. You don't get a response like that in your trials if you are not living a faithful life. But when you come upon suffering, it may hurt you, but it doesn't have to crush you. We can see that in the life of Job. A few years ago, I was a part of a church, and one of the deacons and I, a friend of mine, decided to go visit another friend of ours who was a few years younger than us, but he was born with muscular dystrophy, and he had a number of complications his entire life. He didn't have use of his legs, and so he was either in a wheelchair or he was in his bed. 
um, in this care home. And he's in his mid-20s, and he'd spent most of his life there. And his body was disfigured. He had dozens of surgeries. And so, you know, how someone like that uh, looks just kind of twisted and, and bent up in their skeleton. And he had sores all over his body. He had bed sores because he couldn't move. Nurses had to come in and move him. And he didn't really have any friends. Uh, and his family didn't really visit him either. Um, that's why uh, this deacon and I decided to go see him, see how he was doing. Because he had this infectious joy about him. He loved to worship the Lord. He lived for it. I've never seen somebody raise their hand. Like, he would come in. Songs wouldn't even hardly be started. He'd be wheeling himself in from the back, and his hands are up the whole time, coming down, raising his hands, praising the Lord. He had a joy about him. Every Sunday morning, doesn't matter, rain, snow, shine, wind, didn't matter. You would see him wheeling himself to church. And I remember visiting him and asking him, how are you coping? Like, this seems like a lot, and you're 20 years old. How are you coping? And he said, and I didn't understand it at the time. This week I understand it. He said, the manifold wisdom of God. He said, I'm not alone. God sees me. There's a cloud of witnesses that see me. And if I need to get up and move wherever I'm going, it takes me 25 minutes to go 15 steps. I say to myself, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I lift my other leg up and put it. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I get in my chair. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And he said, I may be in my room alone, but I'm not alone. Do you realize that every time you claim what you know to be true about Jesus and this mystery of grace, the darkness trembles? You know that? That's true. Every time, every small act of faithfulness, every Job-like response shakes the universe. This is what Paul is saying. It shakes the universe, and it actually puts another nail in, in the devil's coffin because angels and demons are looking on. It doesn't matter if anyone sees it. If you're suffering alone and you know that God is with you, there's purpose in it, and it gives you hope and confidence. So the church has a message of grace. The church is a message of grace. And because Paul saw his life as something bigger, he says in verses 12 and 13, he closes with this. In him and through him, that is Christ, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. We have access to the God of grace, Paul says. Everything has been leading up to this point. Everything's been building to verse 12. And he wants you to know that in the daily grind of life, regardless of your suffering, regardless of whatever metaphorical prison you have, Paul's in a literal one that you find yourself stuck in. Here's the reality. He wants you to know that there is a blood-bought reality that in Christ, you now have access to the God of the universe. Are you struggling? You have access to the Creator. Are you discouraged? You have access to the sovereign and not just any kind of access. Paul says you have access 
with boldness and with confidence. That boldness and that confidence are there to, to accentuate what that access should look like. Boldness. You and I don't even have access behind the counter at Taco Bell. I can't even go behind the counter at Taco Bell. I don't have access. The 15-year-old pimple kid, he does. If you work at Taco Bell, it's fine. I love Taco Bell. Give me access. I would be there. But I don't have that access. But in Christ Jesus, we have access, Paul says, to the king, to the king of the universe. You're no longer slaves to sin. You're now partakers of the promise. You're adopted sons and daughters in the family of God. You get unrestricted access. Earthly kings sit on thrones of gold. Paul says, our king sits on a throne of grace, decked out in grace, and he's given you access to his presence and you can have assurance that your sufferings have a purpose and are actually tied to our glory. Understanding the gospel gives you hope and confidence in the face of your trials. And I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know if you're a follower of Christ or if you want to be a part of something bigger. But this can give you confidence and hope regardless of the trial the gospel of grace. If you're not a follower of Christ, then the good news is that the gospel is all about taking people like yourself and making you a part of something much bigger, something cosmic. That's the gospel. Something that can have a prisoner or a cancer sufferer or a divorcee or a doubter or a struggler or an addict, a sinner. The gospel of grace, when you understand it, will give you confidence to face whatever trial you're enduring and will give you hope that on the other side, you'll have access for all eternity to the God who knows you and loves you more intimately than you could ever know or love yourself. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his disciples and he gave them a symbol. It's really a symbol. It was a doorway um, into understanding what does this access to God, what's this going to require? And he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, broken for you. And he took a cup of wine and he, he took it in. And he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for you. You don't get access to God except through Jesus Christ, his broken body and his shed blood for you. Sheer grace. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. You can only receive it. And Jesus gave it to his disciples and said, every time you do this, you are proclaiming my death until I return. The mystery of the gospel of grace present every Sunday morning when we gather here at Trinity. Amen. If you need that grace, don't delay. Take it. Jesus offers it. He says, come, you who are weary, you're struggling, you've got trials. I can help you. Nay, I can save you. I can breathe new life into you. And I can carry you home. Let me pray for us.